Like a deer in the headlights or gum in your hair, what got you here will not get you there. Join us as business owners get unstuck in real time on the business building struggles we all share. Welcome to the Business Breakthrough Podcast. And here's your host, Esty Rand. Welcome to episode 96 of the Business Breakthrough Podcast. My guest today is Liz Kislick. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Esty. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I am glad to have you with us. I think you have much wisdom for us to benefit from. Guys, Liz Kislick is a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and consults for clients such as American Express, Orvis, Girl Scouts, Comcast, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Highlights for Children. Just, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of any of those. Her specialty is developing high-performing leaders and workforces. And her TEDx talk, Why There's So Much Conflict at Work and What You Can Do to Fix It, has been viewed over 140,000 times. That is cool. And she's also, you know, went to Yale and be familiar with her. She's been around the block. Liz, I'm very excited to have you chat with us today, especially as we are in, I think, everyone's favorite word at the moment is unprecedented times in in the world. Um, And workforces are changing, shifting dramatically. You know, I've always had a fully virtual team in our company, but, you know, companies that have always been fully in person are now moved to fully virtual. And I'd wonder, before we dive into your story and how you got here, I'd love to just know your, your thoughts on that. So, you know, Essie, it's unprecedented, but it's unprecedented for us. I think through history, although no other generations have been through exactly what we're going through, there have always been hard and terrible times. And what's amazing is that humanity comes out of it. So... I'm still optimistic and hopeful that we will figure out how to get value from this time and how to keep moving forward in a productive way. Got it. Yeah, that that I'm sure of. Um, I guess I was trying to be more specific, but I wasn't being specific at all. So I'll refine my question, which is kind of more your opinion on teams and workforce, since that's your thing. where you're telling your clients to go, um, where you think people should be going, what they should be doing with their teams in order to build and continue managing them in a healthy way during these times. And and I realized that I totally didn't say that the first time at all, like not even a little bit. Uh, Or I just was caught up in thinking about what a wild time it is. And I comfort myself thinking that we too will survive this. Um, in oh, for ter- sure we will. Yeah. Humanity can't be wiped out. There'd be no planet then. Oh, nothing would make sense. We're all right. going to be here. Right. Nothing to do then. So what I see in my clients, the majority of them are working virtually, but I have a number of clients uh, whose businesses provide essential services or manufacturing right now. <clears throat> so those mm-hmm. have slightly different circumstances. but. In all cases, part of what's most important is for every level of leader to be communicating 
frequently, consistently, and very clearly with more thought perhaps than they've ever had before about how to stay in touch, stay on message, and keep everybody together. Got it. Yeah, no, that I totally hear that. That makes a lot of sense. And any specific message or just, just keeping the communication channels open? It's different for each group, of course. Um, at some of my clients where it really is just about staying consistent and keeping everybody together and keeping the work going, that's one kind of ongoing communication. And they're using Zoom and uh, texting sometimes and emailing, you know, those kinds of regular things. But I do have clients that have had to furlough some of their staffs, uh, in some cases, to cut people's pay from the top to the bottom. And in those cases, in addition to doing what they can to keep the business going, leaders there also in some ways have to act a little bit as comforter in chief or helping people get through what really does feel like a shocking and, and frightening time, even on top of what everybody else is going through, <clears throat> excuse me, just being sequestered or um, having to teach their kids when they're not used to teaching their kids or having to set up a home office when they've never had one, those kinds of things. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. Uh, awesome. So tell me a little bit more about how you got into this, right? Because you work with teams. Sounds like you're obviously still actively working with these companies. How did you go from, you know, fancy degree to <laughs> consultant? Um when I graduated from college, and I graduated with a degree in American studies, and I think I was a pretty classic liberal arts student, all of my friends, all of my close friends went to grad school, and I didn't want to do that because I wanted, I wanted more action. Um, and it seemed to me that business was where that happened. So I took a job. Uh, with a small marketing agency that I had worked for uh, for the two summers prior to my graduating. And cool. it was so, you know, people talk about, so I always talk about feeling lucky. I do feel I've been very lucky. Um, there's a lot of discussion of do you make your own luck? and how hard you have to work to be lucky, and those things are all true. But it was a real advantage to me to be able to start what was formerly my career at a place where I already understood a lot of what the business was. So I was able to start at a higher level than someone normally just graduating from college. And one of the advantages of small and privately held companies and many of the companies that I work with are privately held or family owned. Um, you can 
find things that need to be done and just get down to it. And so I had this wonderful, challenging, but wonderful trajectory in which I kept getting promoted every six months because I was always looking for the things that weren't working and trying to figure out how to do something about them. And then that would get noticed and I would get promoted into actually being responsible for those things. So there were certain headaches and nightmares and scary times, but it meant I was always learning something new and always being tested. And when, um, when the owner of the business died and, and there was no succession planning and things were very challenging there for a while, I had already been there for a number of years and uh, the widow, the owner's widow, uh, promoted me at that point to executive vice president. I had already run operations and I had run client services. Wow. and. What I kind of what kind of company was this? Like you don't have to have a name, but what ki- what type of business was that? Oh, it was a telemarketing agency in the days before telemarketing got ugly. So can I ask how how long ago that was? Because that oh sure, <laughs> no, it's not recent <laughs> at all. Um, it was in uh, the late seventies and early eighties. Oh wow. Okay, yeah. So I I. I'm a little younger than you. Yeah. I wasn't um, quite born yet then. Um, so I definitely don't remember the days before telemarketing was ugly. Can I, can I take us on a tangent for a minute? Can you, because I feel like most of the audience probably doesn't remember that either. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it looked like when telemarketing wasn't ugly? I'm so curious. Oh, I'm going to give you a, two examples. Um, okay. One, one was that when... <laughs> Oh, God, I'm really dating myself here. When microwave ovens were first being sold mm-hmm. for home use, we sold them by okay. phone. They cost $400. Really? Yes, yes, yes. They cost $400. We sold them on behalf, oh of, on behalf of Montgomery Ward, which is a company that does not even exist anymore. They were an old line okay. big, big book cataloger, sort of like Sears. Um, Okay. And I don't, I, I don't know if the, I actually do remember Sears catalogs. I don't know if the audience even remembers Sears catalogs. Uh, Guys, it's like Amazon, but for older people. Oh, um, no, <laughs> very, very different. Everything in one place. Yes. Can. Yes. Oh, I think of it as Amazon because it's just a catalog of everything. Yes, it's true. But um, you would look in this tremendous book of glossy photographs. It was like an enormous magazine of everything you might ever want to buy as a consumer. Ever. Um, And you would fold down or circle or pull out the pages of the things you wanted. When you were a kid, you would ask Mm -hmm. your parents to buy them. Um, And we sold these microwave ovens by phone. People did not know what they were and bought them. Oh, wow. Okay, that was... Fabulous and exciting. Um, something. And what were they saying? Just explain it. Like, hey, we've got this thing. It's like an oven, but it'll make your food ready to eat very fast. Yes. Do you want yes, one? Yes. And it's really expensive. <clears throat> well, we oh didn't say it's really expensive, awesome. because for <laughs> what it was, for for the value it gave you, and the new things you could do with it that you could never do—have your meals ready in minutes—it um, 
it was only four hundred dollars. I hear that, that was positioning. Spoken <laughs> like a true salesperson. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. So that was really cool. And then there was one. Um, oh, okay. Here's something that's more elegant. We did a campaign on behalf of Sotheby's, uh, the art auction okay. house, um, mm -hmm. in which we sold catalogs for their auctions. This is not the art. It is the book that would be published in advance of the auction so that wealthy people who bought art would buy this book and then look at the art that was in the book and decide if they wanted to bid on the art itself. Wow. So first they bought the What did they sell the book for? Do you remember? I don't remember. I mean, it was it was expensive. It, it was not, you know, $12. It was like 100, yeah. you know, I'm making this up, but like yeah. $129 or something like that. I hear. <laughs> yeah. And wow. So for, first you buy the book so that you can buy the art. Yeah, yes. Sense. Yes. Totally so nice. this, but this was very high end boutique marketing to people who had already bought from Sotheby's were already art aficionados, that kind of thing. So it was sophisticated mm -hmm. and it was targeted. And those people were so happy we called them because we had something they wanted. Which is very different from what people think of as telemarketing today. Totally. And I, I feel like because the world was maybe so different, you know, now with, with the whole like, quarantine, it's like people are home. It's like everybody's just home all day. And I have these thoughts and I'm like, you know, once upon a time, people were home. Like <laughs> they, they stayed in their houses. They hung out there sometimes. Um, and... Uh, and you could call people and, and you could call them without texting them first. So you would just call them and ask, that's how you reach people. You knock on their door or you call them. You know, now no one's home. Right. You can only reach someone on a cell phone. And this is going for, for quite a few years already. But nobody's home. And I feel like, you know, if I, if I would think about it, telemarketing probably turns when, when people weren't home anymore. So instead of being a gift, it was a nuisance. People are home for shorter periods of time. They don't want to waste their time talking to random people because that's what they did when they were out. Yes. Um, you had a combination of a number of societal factors. Part of people being out was that was the whole time in society when most women started working outside the home. Right. And exactly as you say, there was less time to reach people when you could reach a lot of them. So what happened? All those calls came out, came in to the home around dinner. And right. keep, in, keep in mind, and this may be new to your audience too, there was no caller ID then. And <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> right? And at that time. Not in time? Press star six, nine. No, none of that. <laughs> and it might well, be. later on. Right. It might be exciting to get a phone call, right? Because who right. called you? It was somebody you knew. It was somebody who cared about you or you cared about. A phone call was compelling in those days. It was not something to avoid. In fact, one of the challenges was that there would be many people, who, consumers, 
who would just want to talk. You couldn't get them off the phone to go on to the next call. <laughs> it, was, it was a completely different time. But one of the things that was lucky for me was that I was able to evolve and adjust my career at the time that telemarketing was becoming less appealing. Because just okay. sticking, sticking with something that goes bad, that's not a very successful approach. If you can see that right. it's changing, not, not going to get you super far. No, it uh, doesn't make you very popular either. Um, <laughs> so, being able to see that it's time to make a change is very important. And the widow sold the business, and I did not like the direction it was going under the new owners. It was becoming more commoditized, like the rest of telemarketing. And I knew it wasn't for me. So I left. And within a week, other people I knew in the industry, in the direct marketing industry, were subcontracting work to me. Um, I had done some consulting while I was at the firm. And so other people started subcontracting to me. And I never stopped. So I've had my own practice now for just over 32 years. Wow. And even that, That's amazing. Uh, it has been, well, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. Um, even that, leaving there, I had to shift what I was doing in my practice. So I started out consulting on the kind of telemarketing that I had worked on. And then I gravitated toward customer service, which, although very hard in its way, you didn't have you know, the consuming public being aggravated at you all the time the way you did in telemarketing. It seemed much more beneficial. Right. So from the customer service and then into what might be called call center operations um, or now contact center operations or service center operations, because mm -hmm. as those things became more sophisticated, you were really helping companies manage their workforces and uh, their structures and systems and processes, that kind of thing. And from being inside those operations, you learn a little of everything that happens in the company because anything that goes wrong anywhere in an organization eventually ends up affecting customers. So if you are in the call center, those reps hear from customers all kinds of stuff that the company hasn't told them about necessarily. And being in call centers, I would then be able to convey to the leaders of the organization what things were going wrong in their organizations. And so if they were interested ah. in making improvements, then we would work on those things. So I then shifted into all kinds of process improvement stuff, into employee development and training, and from there into the kind of strategic planning and leadership development and team development and just general business consulting that I do now. 
Got it. That's super cool. It's been great. I'm so it's it's really been wonderful and and lucky. Yeah, no, I really like that. So your early days were all in I get to me telemarketing is also like a call center, but just different, right? Outbound versus inbound, if you will. Um and so so what do you do now? Is it more like general consulting? Is it specifically team management? How did you get into it? Like what what's kind of the current iteration of where you've landed or or where you feel like your business superpower is? Okay, I'm thinking because um part of what I like, I just like to figure out problems that have been hanging around for a long time and making people crazy. And mm-hmm. So most of my work right now, I would say, is in mid-sized companies because they have less bureaucracy and red tape in many ways. Yeah. And I yeah. do, I have to say, my preference is for owner-operated because then when something goes wrong, I can go to the owner and say, this is what I'm seeing. Do you want to do something about it? Um, yeah. And I like having that direct channel. You know, I've been doing this so long that I don't want to have to convince six managers along the way. I want to be able mm-hmm. to go to the top and say, this is the real thing. Do you want to deal? And sometimes business owners don't. Sometimes they're content to leave it the way it is, or they don't think it's a big problem, or they're occupied with other matters. Uh, but yeah. in many cases, they say, oh, please, let's deal with that. It's been such a thorn in my side, and I haven't known what to do, or we've tried everything. Do you have another idea? So um, yeah. that's really what I like the best. So there is a whole bunch of general business consulting. For example, for a relatively new client, the last trip I made before all this stay-at-home stuff um, was at the very end of February. And that company had not, in fact, ever developed any kind of emergency plan. And it it wasn't what we had planned to do. But I said, you know, there is this illness We don't know how bad it's going to be. You have to be ready in case. And in the two days I was there, we basically created the bones of a plan that they were then able to use the next week. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode. Stay tuned for part two going live Thursday. And of course subscribe. You do not want to miss it.